This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture is Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going to begin today? I think we have to start uh, with the very sad loss of Sir David Amos, MP. Um, um, I met Sir David on several occasions uh, on two, uh, around 2005 and 2006. Um, he actually asked me, um, in a fairly academic sense, for an assessment of New Labour and what really was New Labour all about and where were they going? And I gave him my opinions. And um, he said that he would like me to brief uh, some of his colleagues um, uh, because he believed that my insights were fairly powerful and, and quite significant. And I did. And on that journey, um, and at the time, I was the public affairs director for the independent healthcare sector. But at the time, I was meeting lots of conservative and lots of Labour MPs. But what really stood out, I remember actually sitting with Sir David, and, and I was just about to um, give this talk to about 20 or 25 Conservative members of Parliament. And I remember thinking, well, I've met you on two or three occasions, and you're so charming, and you appear to be so nice. Are you for real? And he was just so lovely, I actually became a little bit suspicious. But as time went on... <laughs> It's rather really, sad comment. It, yes. it, it, it is. I mean, you know, with politicians, they're often, how can I put this, very polished, very charming, in inverted yes. commas. But mm. he really, really was um, a really good man. And he was an absolute devotee of his constituents. And it's only really with his passing that you can see that he was also very much a religious gentleman. He was a passionate Catholic. He engaged with all faith groups in his constituency and he was highly motivated and he also appears to be a very good family man so it, it is sad and and then that led me to wonder you know the context of this I mean in my lifetime uh we've lost um quite a number of MPs of course we had the tragic loss back in 2016 of, of Joe Cox mm. um which was appalling she was murdered uh, by what was in effect a far-right extremist. Um, uh, uh, and that was a few days before the Brexit referendum. You'll remember back in 1990, we lost Ian Gow, um, who was a former army officer and a Conservative MP, and he was murdered by an IRA car bomb outside his home uh, in East Sussex. And then before that, you had Sir Anthony Berry, who died again, from an IRA bomb in 1983, and prior to that, Robert Bradford in 1981. Uh, he was um, an Ulster Unionist, and he was also a Methodist minister, and he was assassinated by an IRA gunman. Um, and Robert Bradford was a young man. He was really only he was only 40 years of age. Um, the year, a couple of years before that, of course, um, you had Erie Neve, 
who be, had a very distinguished career. And he was killed actually by, um, by uh, a small uh, uh, Irish Republican group, the Irish National Liberation Army. Um, but if you go back further and you go back through the annals of history, what you discover is in the early 19th century, we actually lost um, a prime minister yeah, Spencer Percival. I was going to. I was going to mention that. I wasn't sure if it was too long ago. Yeah. No. Well, it, no. I mean, in eighteen twelve, Spencer Percival was shot dead mm. um, in the lobby of the House of Commons. He was killed by, um, I think, a businessman who uh, had lost um, uh, some money in a dispute over Russian debt. And he blamed the Prime Minister for this. Um, I think. I think this man had lost sort of seven thousand pounds, which is a huge amount of money, of course, back in eighteen twelve. But but yes, the Prime Minister was shot dead in the House of Commons, in the lobby. So, um, you know, it's a tragic record. But if you think about it, we've now lost six MPs since the end of the um, uh, Second World War. And given there are only 650 MPs, um, that's quite a high loss rate. You know, it's a, it's it shows that it's, yes. a, it's a risky, it's a risky um, vocation to follow. It is. And of course, as with almost anything like this, there are sort of knee jerk reactions as to how on earth MPs can be protected with some ideas that I suppose would make it much more difficult for the genuine constituent actually to contact their their MP. But I guess that also is another feature of politics that people want to be seen to be doing something and reacting, even if perhaps thinking long and hard might actually be more sensible and taking time. I agree. I mean, the most telling thing for me uh, about the reaction to Sir David Davison and the question you're raising, which is what is to be done, the most telling reaction is very, very few people have actually said there should be more policemen and women, um, uh, you know, attending, for example, um, MP surgeries. Um, what you have had is a lot of people left and right saying that there should be specially contracted, uh, qualified, you know, private security personnel. Now, obviously, the, the private security sector now is quite stringently regulated in this country, and they're, regu they're regulated through the British Security Industry Authority. So the licensing, you know, is, is pretty stringent. Um, and, and, and those people who are licensed to do close protection you know, are, 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 are highly trained. But, um, you know, gone are the days uh, 20, 30 years ago when politicians purely looked to uniform police officers. In a way, it shows that we already have this huge public-private partnership in law enforcement when the reaction is, well, look, you know, the police are already overstretched. They're already doing a vast amount of work. Um, group, specialist groups, um, special operations groups like the diplomatic protection group are, you know, are, are, are overstretched. Um, um, uh, you know, to have the protection you need and the efficiency, um, the Home Office are going to have to turn to uh, the British security industry. And I think that's a that's a very significant um, moment because long gone are the days of Dixon and Doc Green and that idea, which we probably grew up with, Simon, that the police ultimately could do it all, you know, mm. that, that, that they could protect everyone. Yes. I mean, is that, do you think, because of 
a change in policing or a change in our expectations of, of policing. And there have been quite a lot of criticisms of certain police forces of of late, that they don't appear to be doing the sort of things that, you know, Joe Public tends to expect them to do. Well, I, I think that, you know, most police officers would tell you that over the last 30 or 40 years, politicians of all stripes have laid ever more um, duties on them and that often they're getting involved in the sort of work that traditionally would have been expected, quite frankly, of, of, of social workers. Um, um, uh, you know, so, uh, and the, you know, the police are getting more resource. Um, there are more police officers, but uh, long gone are the days where it would be efficient or, or indeed, I have to say, effective to have what most people want, which is, of course, lots and lots of police officers back on the beat. Very few crimes or problems arise, you know, in front of an officer when they're walking a beat. What matters is that they are dealing with crimes as and when they're reported. But, but you know, they, they are under pressure. Their budgets are under pressure. Um, and it would be very difficult, wouldn't it, to... Uh, justify so much uh, police resource to defend several hundred members of the House of Commons. Yes. It, it seems to be that most of the commentators in the know on this are talking about um, privately contracted uh, close protection uh, uh, experts. I mean, the, the worry, I suppose, is that, is that there are all manner of public figures who need to be protected all the time. I mean, we saw, for instance, um, um, you know, MPs have been jostled and uh, in the street um, recently. I mean, how, how can MPs go about their ordinary business and yet have this extra layer of, of protection? Is it not just going to make them even more insulated from the public than they are? I mean, the one good thing about surgeries and the one impressive thing about David Amis is, is, is how open to his constituents he was, even though this person apparently was claimed to be a prospective constituent rather than actual one. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is that, that, that David Amis, um, uh, you know, was not alone and being accessible. I have to say most members of the House of Commons uh, make themselves available uh, on a regular basis mm. to constituents and have done. Um, and, and although David's death is tragic, and, and I mentioned uh, some of the other deaths that we've seen in, in yes. decades, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that actually it's more dangerous being a member of parliament today than it was, for example, uh, in the in the eighteenth or you know the seventeenth or eighteenth century. I would suggest not. Um, 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 so it's all about striking the right balance, and it's quite frankly, it's about allocating the right sort of expertise and skill mm. to protect people in a way where you don't disconnect MPs from their constituents. Uh, because, you know, that would be a huge blow to democracy and it would be a victory um, for the people who commit these atrocities. Um, so it's about, you know, what sort of resource uh, do MPs need to make sure that they can maintain their surgeries, that they can meet their constituents and that they can attend lots and lots of local events. It's not only, you know, the local constituency surgeries, but it's also... Um, lots of community groups, church groups, summer fates, schools, hospitals, you name it. Um, most members of parliament of all political uh, stripes um, are heavily involved 
in their constituencies. When you get one of the striking things when you get to know MPs um, is how proud invariably they become of their local areas. You know, you talk to to most local MPs and they will bore you blind about the history of their area, the love they have for the area, they've developed for the area. Many of them, of course, grew up in their areas, um, but they become very, very passionate, very mm. proud to represent, um, you know, that local patch. So for me, it's about getting the right balance. Um, um, and the, I think there's going to have to be um, some sort of cross-party agreement on this. And, and then the Home Office are going to have to intervene. Tim, thank you very much. Time for us to change topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going now? Um, we, I think we've got to look at the government's uh, net zero plans. Um, and although to many they will be impressive, uh, I think economically and certainly politically, they are high risk. I mean, without going into too much detail, uh, the government had public um, uh, uh, their, their net zero strategy, and alongside a bevy of other policy documents, they published recently upwards of 2,000 pages. Um, and, and in a sense, Britain now has the most ambitious plans uh, to, uh, to, 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 to make real uh, a net zero future. And it's very clear as we move from the 2020s into 2030s and 40s, that the, 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 the government had determined this will happen. What is of concern, I have to say, is um, first of all, on the international stage, uh, it's, we've learned recently that Vladimir Putin from Russia um, uh, will not be attending COP26 in Glasgow. Um, I don't believe the Indian delegation have confirmed their attendance and increasingly, uh, it looks uncertain as to whether Xi Jinping will come from China. And, and why that's a real blow is because, of course, Russia uh, is a major you know, hydrocarbon economy. It's a major polluter. Uh, China is. Um, and so is India. And in fact, the, the recent signs from India and China is that they're going to be, you know, they're going to remain heavily dependent um, on coal and on fossil fuels. Um, for several decades to come, somewhat in violation of the spirit of um, of using you know green technology and innovate to 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 clean up um, the environment. And you know, I mean, for all the boldness of the British government on this issue, um, you know, Britain's stake in this, in a global sense, is probably around zero point two or three. 
percent of, of of global output so we're 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 a fraction and and quite frankly if if the russians and the chinese and the indians and 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 you know the americans or whoever are not ambitious then then it, it is not clear um that um that the sort of cleaning up of 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 the environment that, that, that is required will take place so there's a real political risk here that that that, that britain could be left you know having gone morally high and tried to do the right thing but having gone out quite frankly on a very uh, costly limb now i think in domestic politics um this is a real problem for the labor party because uh this is about the conservative party uh putting their tanks on on traditionally sort of center-left terrain um and and so that you know creates renewed problems for uh uh the labor party given the extra amounts of money this government is putting into the nhs um and has put in already and given the sort of ambition that the uh that the, the, the government have developed on climate there's not a, not a lot that can be done to attack the government on these issues from the left so that's a big problem the last thing is the economic issue um because britain is leading the pack and, and somewhat going out on limb because we're being so ambitious um we cannot know if boris johnson's idea uh that somehow innovation and new technology will not only lead to a better and brighter future that that as he you know he used the examples of um microwave technology or mobile phones um that somehow in time uh the economics of this will mean that this technology gets much cheaper and that once we've made the upfront investment and we've suffered the upfront cost of all this that it will actually lead to much better and cheaper energy um for us and a much more dynamic economy for us um politicians of all stripes have said this sort of thing over the years but governments are not always brilliant um at directing or bringing to fruition innovation um and and certainly they're not <laughs> brilliant at, uh, at making things cheaper well particularly particularly tim as a lot of this technology either doesn't exist yet at all or is completely untested and unproven and this idea we've all got to get rid of gas gas borders and get heat pumps which apparently incredibly difficult for anybody who doesn't have a lot of outside space and are incredibly noisy and would be absolutely appalling in areas where there are lots of people living close together the fact that all petrol and diesel cars are going to be banned in nine years time even though people already have trouble with their electric cars in trying to find places where they can charge them and many people do not have a charging point near their near their house so i mean it just it just it just seems to me as if we've got a government of arts graduates who are being led by the nose by people who've got uh, an axe to grind and special agendas. And I noticed Alistair Heath in The Telegraph today saying he thinks it's all so serious. It's been done far too fast without proven technology that he says it's as serious as, as frankly, as our relationship with the EU and that we need a referendum on net zero to save Britain from the green blob. I mean, he thinks politically it could be utterly disastrous for Conservatives. He's obviously mystified. Indeed, and, and, and these are the risks. Uh, the risks are that later this decade, early next decade, um, this could uh, derail the Conservative Party. I mean, in a sense, we've been here before. This is almost the meat and drink of politics. Uh, who will forget uh, 
um, the, the Labour government and Nye Bevan and Clement Attlee in 45, arguing that if only we could deal with the backlog of healthcare needs, spectacles, dentistry, and the rest of it, then the NHS would be cheaper. Um, who could forget um, in the 1960s Harold Wilson um, gambling um, uh, on, on, on the manifesto built around what was then called the white heat of technology? Um, now, you know, Harold Wilson painted an interesting picture on the future relating to new technology, more universities, uh, upskilling, if you will, um, and, a, and, a, and a future built on information technology and computers. Um, but actually, it was quite a few decades later that, that, that much of what he was talking about actually came to fruition. And it wasn't a result, quite frankly, um, of the British government. Although the one thing he did, I think, get right was, for example, expand the university, particularly develop the open university. But, but uh, a lot of the technology that he was really dreaming of actually came to fruition 20 or 30 years later, mm. much more as a result of places like Silicon Valley, or in this country, people like Sir Clive Sinclair, entrepreneurs who had very little to do with the government. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I get the vision of the Prime Minister and the government uh, of this uh, better and brighter and cleaner uh, and, and more energy efficient future, but you're absolutely right, and it could go economically wrong. There could be, uh, you know, a, a best case scenario um, in the short term, very high upfront costs with serious electoral ramifications for the Conservatives. Um, or worst case, it could be an enormous white elephant. And the real risk is that because we're living in a period of history where change is changing and innovation changes things so quickly, that just when um, uh, politicians and their scientific advisors think that the next thing will be you know, hydrogen or nuclear or this mm. or that, or petrol or not diesel, you know, whatever it is. The problem is that the science is evolving often quite quickly, that what you thought of five or 10 years ago looks laughably redundant. It's very difficult, I think, for politicians to keep up with the pace of change. So uh, I'm very sympathetic to what Alistair Heath has said this morning. This could go terribly wrong. Um, but it, you know, for the, for the days ahead, um, However disappointed Her Majesty the Queen may be, and for whatever the appeal of David Attenborough um, and Greta Thunberg is, uh, in the short term, it appears that not only is Russia not going to play ball uh, with the um, with the sort of the West's uh, green agenda, but there are grave doubts whether many other players, including Xi Jinping and China, are going to play ball as well. And if they're not, and if the climate scientists are right then there's very little, ultimately, in the bigger picture um, that the British government can do, apart from try to do yes. the right thing in, a, in an age of huge change. Yes. And as Alistair Heath points out, this is a, you know, a massive change and an expensive change being enacted without the will of the electorate at all. So goodness knows what the reaction is going to be. Anyway, Tim, uh, time for us to uh, choose another topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University. Tim, we've got one final topic. What's that? So there was an extraordinary showdown um, uh, a few days ago in the European Parliament 
where the Polish Prime Minister um, basically insisted uh, that Polish law um, would remain supreme over and above uh, EU law. Um, there has been a Polish constitutional tribunal recently um, um, which ruled uh, that Polish national law superseded European law. And what, what's really interesting about this uh, is not only uh, the tension uh, between Poland and Brussels, and they do seem to be on a collision course, um, but um, the uh, clear determination now on, on the part of Brussels and the major powers in the EU that, that the EU is indeed um, there to be preeminent in law and, and to be on track to build, in a sense, a federal Europe. Um, and I think this goes back to the sort of two very distinct visions, not just of Europe, but of, 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 of the world. This, you know, there are those people who believe that the world should be, in effect, blockified, you know, that you should have the African Union, the European Union, that there should be a union of Latin American countries, etc. That sort of that if you can have a blockified world within these blocks are increasingly interlinked and federal structures, that then those blocks can then cooperate at, at, a, at a global level and that this will deliver more effective governance and peace. There's that sort of blockified view. And then there's the other view, which is that those blocks are too far removed from people, that, that mm. once you denude people of feeling that their governance is close, that their democracy is real, that their representatives, um, you know, um, are, are close to them, um, and that if they're not, if you try and impose uh, this sort of blockist perspective, this will lead to extremism and political polarization. You know, you'll suddenly see the rise of really extreme forms of nationalism um, and racism and xenophobia, and uh, you know, and and then a uh, a reaction uh, more on the hard left, all that, and you end up in a sort of vortex of doom. Um, you know, it, what's clear to me now is that that Europe is absolutely, in a in quite an inflexible way, clinging to an ever more extreme version of of the of, of the blockificationist perspective. Poland seems to be uh, determined to retain its. Um, its national sovereignty. Um, and what's remarkable, quite frankly, about both sides, it does strike me ultimately as a dialogue of the deaf. Um, it, there seems to be an inability, and we saw this after Brexit with Britain, there seems to be an inability um, in Brussels to have a strategic refresh and to take stock and to think in a more agile way about whether they should go for you know full unification for full federalization or should they not focus more on economic issues and reassess the role that that subsidiarity can play in governance I mean, many have said that uh, 
the EU's attitude to Britain must be to, to, to punish it in a sense, to show others that you cannot leave the, the EU. Um, there is no, I think, way in which the EU can expel a member, if I'm reading rightly. But um, Poland seems to be able to take advantage of this, can't it? Because um, at the moment, it's simply ignoring EU rules it likes. And the EU is so determined that no other country is to leave the bloc that it's, it's rather caught between a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, in, in, in a sense, when you look academically at political economy and, and, and statecraft, Simon, what mm. you realise is that um, whether you're looking at a federal structure, uh, a supranational federal structure, or even if you're looking at what we call our own nation states, these are actually pretty unstable entities. You know, when we talk about the United Kingdom, it is only itself, you know, sort of 300 years old. And um, pretty much when you look at any nation state, you know, I mean, as you know, I lived for a long time in um, Czechoslovakia. Um, I mean, I lived in a city in Bratislava that 100, 150 years before was called Pressburg, um, you know. And um, when I lived in Brussels, you know, we think of Belgium, the capital Brussels. Belgium is, is itself deeply divided mm. between the, the, the Walloons and the Flems. All these groups, all these groups um, have tensions and all these structures evolve. And they often evolve quite quickly. Um, the United Kingdom's stability for 300 years, which, of course, may be coming asunder now, mm. is quite, that's quite an interesting tale. You can look at other sort of less political entities, like the East India Company. I mean, the East India Company, you know, led troops and navies, um, or, or naval sea power, um, it taxed, it minted its own coins, um, and it existed for over 250 years. The, the point being that there aren't many political entities that, that are that stable, and the European Union was very much born of its time. It was sort of a, a twinkle in the eye of the early cold warriors um, and, and, and the mid 20th century. Whatever's going on, um, one wonders how sustainable it is. And what you learn, I think, when you really raise your gaze and you look at, at statecraft and the history of, of states, um, however large or small they may be, often their undoing is a lack of flexibility. If I was in Brussels today, and if I was a passionate European and I believed in a significant role for the European Union, my priority would be to learn, not punish, because that's going low, you know, that's denying the will of nearly 70 million people in Britain. But I would want to learn from the message of the British people. I'd be listening very closely to what's going on in Poland. And I would be trying to look for the right level of governance, not just bulldoze an ideological perspective. You know, I'm, I'm a federalist, I want federalism. We're gonna find a way to do it. We will punish, we will bully, we will coerce. No, I think it's time to reflect, take stock and adapt. Um, you know, if you have countries that are like Poland, that, that, that really want a slightly different settlement uh, within the European Union family, well, 
why can why can't that be uh, developed? That's my question. Fascinating to see how it turns out, Tim. Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.